Good morning, everyone. So I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 35 through to the end of the chapter. You can follow along on the screen. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, and animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true... Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. My kids have been watching a lot of Ninja Warrior lately. In fact, I think it might even be the grand final on tonight or tomorrow night or something like that. Have you ever seen Ninja Warrior? Quite a few people. You know, it's this extreme obstacle course that, for those who are a bit older, it makes me think of It's a Knockout, that's the name of the game. Do you remember that? (laughs) The people who who compete in Ninja Warrior, though, they're these young, strong muscly, super fit kind of people. And as I watch, I always find myself thinking, could I do what they're doing? 
you know, for you, it's like, nah, of course not. But, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, once upon a time, if I worked really hard and trained, could I do the kind of things that they're doing? And I think to myself, not anymore. I'm just too old. Even if I wanted to, I just couldn't do it. And I felt okay with that until the other day when a 51-year-old granddad completed the course. And I realized it's not so much age that's holding me back. I just don't have the super fit super strong body that you need for Ninja Warrior and I don't have the motivation to even try and get it. I reckon I could probably squeeze out 10 chin-ups if I cheated a little bit. But a body that's fit for a Ninja Warrior course, that would take some serious, drastic transformation. Now today, what was just read for us and what we're going to be looking at is the ultimate story of transformation. A transformation far more drastic than even would be needed to compete in Ninja Warrior. Today we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about our bodies being transformed completely, utterly. I reckon we quite like transformation stories. There's a whole genre of reality TV from buildings to bodies being transformed and, and it's a big theme in, in movies as well. The transformation kind of storyline captures our imagination. But God's plan for this world is the greatest story of transformation that could ever be told. Because in our world, one thing's certain. Every single one of us will die. But God plans to transform that reality by transforming us. And we don't like to think about the fact that we're going to die, of course... We, um, we like to hide that truth from ourselves and we manage to hide it pretty well in this country, I reckon. But even still, we feel the impact of death in all sorts of ways. Listen to how the Bible describes death in Isaiah 25. God says that death is the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. God talks about death as being our enemy, and not just our enemy, but his enemy as well. And what we see today is that God's plan is to overcome death by transformation. His plan is to transform his people so that death can never touch us again. And he plans to do that by resurrecting his people from the dead with changed bodies. But there's something in our culture that makes the idea of resurrection just really implausible for us, I reckon. It just doesn't feel real. Our our culture is this strange mix of secular naturalism, so that we talk um, as if all there is and, and all there is is what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel. All there is 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 what you can experiment on. And truth is is only what science can describe. Have you come across that kind of idea before? There's that idea. But then also in our culture, we've got this idea of individualistic spirituality. So that we, we talk as if there's more to life than just the physical. There's this intangible personal spiritual dimension so that a lot of people believe that, you know, when when people die, somehow they go on, somehow they have this kind of existence and you hear it all the time at funerals our culture is is this strange blend of these two ideas and quite a few people 
seem to hold both of these different ideas, even though they seem to conflict with each other. But what most people don't do is bring these two ideas together. What you don't do in our culture is mix the realms of the physical and the spiritual. You keep them separate. But the thing about resurrection is that it refuses to keep them separate. Jesus is raised from the dead with a a physical body and yet he's raised supernaturally, spiritually. And the Bible tells us that this is God's plan for the whole world, for the transformation of the world. Resurrection is the future. But culturally, we struggle with this. We want to say, but spirituality is personal. It's not about an overarching plan for history. That's not what spirituality is about. It's not about... completely transforming the physical world that's that's not spirituality you've got to keep the physical and the and the spiritual separate have you have you seen that tension in people have you have you felt it in yourself even it's got its roots in the enlightenment and a philosopher called Immanuel Kant and it's still very much alive today and what this means for us is that the resurrection can sound unbelievable even silly So you could imagine, or we could imagine fairly easily, bodies being, you know, 3D printed from DNA, right? Stick with me for a bit. You know, and you could imagine memories somehow being digitally stored and then downloaded into freshly printed 3D brains. It sounds disgusting and completely unethical, but it sounds plausible because it fits with that natural worldview. Or we could imagine leaving our bodies behind and going on spiritually somehow beyond this world, only vaguely touching this world. And that sounds plausible in a different way because it it fits with that spiritual individual realm. But bringing them together just doesn't fit. God resurrecting you one day, physically and spiritually. God transforming your body to, to fit into a new world order, physically and spiritually. That clashes with our cultural belief. Now, it was the same for the Christians at Corinth. The part of the Bible that we're looking at today is is written to a church where the very idea of resurrection clashed with their culture. It just didn't fit for them, but for slightly different reasons than for us. They accepted that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That was overwhelmingly obvious to them. They had access to people who'd seen Jesus, who'd touched Jesus raised from the dead. They knew people and they knew them well, people like the Apostle Peter. They had no trouble accepting that Jesus was raised, but what they had trouble accepting was that resurrection was God's plan for them. In their Greek culture, that the physical world was seen as incompatible with the spiritual and what you needed to do was escape the physical to the spiritual and the idea that the physical could somehow rise to the spiritual was actually a a little bit disgusting. But what we see in this passage today is that resurrection is not only something that's real, but it's central to God's plan. And this brings us to our first point for today. The resurrection is real and it's essential. Look at verse 35. Paul writes, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? 
Now, I don't know about you, but, but I read this and think, well, that's kind of a fair enough question, isn't it? But then look at what Paul says in verse 36. How foolish. Feels a bit harsh. But the thing is, they're not asking this question genuinely because they want to know the answer. They're asking this question because they think that they're showing that there is no answer. It's asked sarcastically. The other day, someone left their phone at the church playgroup. Uh, they left it behind there. And so they, they knocked on my door looking for Kathy, thinking that she might have picked up the phone. Kathy, my wife. And so I said, well, Kathy's not home at the moment, but I'm sure she would have given you a call if she'd picked up your phone. <laughs> and so this person asked the question, how would she call me if she has my phone? Now, it's a very good question, right? But it wasn't a question that was expecting a good answer. It was asked to point out that my question was a silly one. Well, that's what the Corinthians are doing there in this church. They think the idea of being resurrected is silly and they think they're showing it just by asking this question. But Paul turns the tables. Just because something feels silly in your culture doesn't mean that it is silly. Paul shows that the resurrection is real and it's essential. Last week, we saw that, that Paul started with the common ground of Jesus' resurrection, which they knew happened. Moving from there, he talks about their resurrection. But still, Paul comes at this from common ground. Because, in part, he actually agrees with some of the things that they're saying. Look at verse 20, uh, 50. Sorry. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, their problem isn't with the science of resurrection. Their problem is that, unlike us, death isn't hidden in their world. They look around and they say its effects everywhere. They look around and they think, how can weak, limited humans be a part of the perfect spiritual world that God's bringing about? I mean, just think about our community here in our church. Just this week, we've had, week, we've had people who've had knee replacements, people who've had knee replacements gone wrong, gallbladder surgery, cellulitis, back pain, cancer diagnosis. And that's just what I know about on top of all the chronic conditions that many of us bear. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but... We're not exactly prime candidates for starting a new world. They, if we're thinking about it like that, they probably wouldn't even ask us to colonize Mars. Now, surely we're not suited to the perfect world that God is making. And that's without taking, uh, taking into account our mental and moral failings as well. So why on earth would God want people like us Physically flawed, mentally flawed, morally flawed. Why would he want people like us in his kingdom? Now, Paul agrees with this part of what they're saying. As we currently stand, we don't belong to what's coming. Our physical weakness, our moral weakness, it doesn't belong in God's perfect kingdom. But they've gone wrong in their thinking, and it's a pretty big oversight, because they haven't accounted for transformation, not People gradually, slowly self-improving, like our culture often thinks is the solution. Not that. They haven't accounted for God bringing about a radical, sudden, complete transformation. That's what resurrection is. 
it's real and it's essential. Look at verse 51. Paul says, listen, I, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That's his way of talking about when Christians die. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This is God's plan for the world. This is our destiny. We, we don't lose ourselves in this. We, we only gain, we gain immortality. Look at verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. We struggle to accept this idea of transformation through God resurrecting us. But have you ever imagined a body that doesn't let you down? A body that that, that can't get sick, that can't get a diagnosis of cancer, ever. It's just not possible. A body that doesn't suffer from chronic fatigue or pain. Or have you ever imagined imagined a mind not prone to depression or anxiety or self-harm or stress? Or a heart that that doesn't betray you. A heart that that doesn't feel envy when what you really want to feel is contentment, thankfulness, joy. A heart that doesn't feel indifference when what you really want to feel is compassion. Or greed when you wish for generosity. Lust when you desire faithfulness. Have you ever imagined a, a body a mind, a heart in perfect harmony with itself, in perfect, perfect harmony with all others, with its world. It's almost impossible to imagine. But when we do imagine that, what we're imagining is what God has planned for his people. God has planned a transformation where we'll be resurrected in a body that's completely fit for the world to come. Now, the Corinthians, they were right to think that our current bodies could never fit in the world that God has planned to come. But they were wrong to think that the solution was to leave this world and bodily existence behind. Physicality is not the problem. Sin is. Sin. The rejection of God's plan. The rejection of God. That's the problem. And escaping from the physical is not the solution. Jesus is. And this brings us to our second point. The resurrection is God getting victory over death for us. Look at verse 54 again. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is our rejection of God and it's the cause of death and it's the sting of death. But Jesus has taken that sting already. He absorbs the poison of that sting into himself. He faces the consequences of our sin for us at the cross and he overthrows death. First, when he's resurrected, but second, when he resurrects his people. 
he will overthrow death completely. Have you ever sat with someone who's dying? Have you ever watched their body fade away? It's like you're watching death swallow them up more and more. Have you ever felt completely powerless to do anything about it? I have. I watched my mum be swallowed by death. I watched Steph, as many of you did as well. I remember working as a pharmacist where I got more and more disillusioned because you saw the same people come back month by month. And I know some of you people feel like you're always in pharmacies. Year after year, people fading away, being swallowed. And I was powerless to make any real difference. And as a young, idealistic pharmacist, I realized, hang on a minute. All we do doctors included, is hold people's hands on the way to death. How many times have have you sat through a funeral angry at death? I remember, remember a friend's baby, that funeral. friend in his 20s how many times will a doctor say in this world I'm sorry there's nothing more I can do but what does Jesus say he says I am the living one I was dead but now look I'm alive forever and ever Jesus says, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I am making everything new. That's the power of what Jesus will do. Death swallows all. But when Jesus transforms this world, death will be swallowed up in victory. Do you feel the power of that? Today, we're sending over 70 people, 70 of you to Paraka. And as we send you, we here are reminded that we've been sent too to Monbury. We're sending you and we are sent to tell people about God's plan for this world. We're sent to people who are are tossed backwards and forwards by all sorts of conflicting ideas and in beliefs in this world who are told on the one hand that human life is incredibly valuable but then on the next are told that human life is no more valuable than animals and plants who are told that it's actually up to them to make meaning in their lives their life is only as valuable as they make it and then who are told in the next breath that actually life is objectively meaningless has no real value it's random our world is a, our culture is wave after wave of conflicting ideas. People do an incredibly job, an incredibly good job of holding these conflicting ideas together and just getting on with life. But every so often, their heart sees the truth. Death has power over us all, and nothing we can do can change that. 
But we are sending you today with another truth. A message simple but profound that, that cuts through all those messages. We are saying, yes, death really is an enemy, but it is an enemy that has been overcome by Jesus. We go telling people that we can share in Jesus' victory. Now, there's no doubt that it's a hard message to tell people, one that at first just doesn't resonate with our culture, but it's the truth. Jesus really is the answer they're looking for, even if they don't know it. And resurrection really is the transformation that we need. And so this brings us to our last point. The resurrection is to shape our lives now. Now, the resurrection shapes life now in many ways. But Paul gives us two ways here. Look at verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now here, Paul is returning to what he said at the beginning of the chapter, where he said, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Their hope, our hope, is that we take our stand on this message, that we build our lives upon it, because no other ground holds victory over death. There's now only one thing that can separate us from victory from immortality there's only one thing that can separate us from the transformation that god plans to bring and that's our pride it's being too proud to lay our lives into the hand of jesus and to admit that our only hope is one day being resurrected by him that's the only thing that can separate people now from being a part of god's kingdom and paul says to you don't do it Don't let it. The resurrection means that we should make sure our lives are are built on this message of hope. Make sure that nothing moves us from it. There are so many false hopes and, and many other promises and dreams that our culture would tell us. But none of them can beat death. Resurrection is God's plan. Don't let pride think that you've got a better plan for your life than God. But look at the second way the resurrection shapes life now. Verse 58, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, when you take your stand on the resurrection hope, what's the very next thing that you do? Well, you call others to do the same. You know, if you're on an aeroplane, and hopefully this never happens to you, but if the the oxygen suddenly disappears and the mask drops, what do you do? Well, the very first thing you do is you put the mask on yourself. What's the very next thing that you do? Well, you grab the magazine out and read about holidays to Hawaii and see if there's some unanswered crossword questions. No! You put the mask on your child who's sitting there next to you. And then you put the mask on anyone that you can reach. Now, that's what's going on here. It's that kind of thinking. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We've seen the work of the Lord right across 1 Corinthians over these months that we've been doing it. In chapter 3, it's building up the church. It's planting the gospel message and then watering it. That's the work. In chapter 9, Paul said to them, Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? In chapter 16, he says, Timothy is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Now, all work is valuable. All work can be done for God. But not all work is the work of the Lord. 
The work of the Lord is calling on people who don't know Jesus to turn to him. And it's calling on people who do know Jesus to keep living for him. Not all work is the work of the Lord, but all of us are called to do the work of the Lord. Paul's not writing just to leaders here. He's writing to the whole church. And look at when they're to do this work. Always. There are many ways to do the work of the Lord. Formal, informal, here, at home, with your family, in your workplace, on your weekends. Whenever we urge people to come to Jesus or to stick with Jesus, we're doing the work of the Lord. Look at how we're to do this work. Always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. This is the priority. It takes devotion. It's not necessarily easy. It's it's something that we have to give ourselves to. It's real work, labor. And so finally, look at the driving force behind our motivation in doing this work. We do it knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Just like taking our stand on the resurrection is not in vain, so calling other people to do the same is not in vain. Now, at times it might feel that way, but because of Jesus' victory over death, because resurrection is the plan, it's not. Now, you might be feeling a little bit like this. Well, it's easy for you to say, Stephen, you work as a minister, but, but I find it hard to give myself to the work of the Lord. But let me say, I think almost every person finds it hard to give themselves to the work of the Lord, myself included. I think that's the point. It's hard work, but it's worth it. Playing a part in helping people live forever is never work that's wasted. It's worth it. When I read the Bible to my kids at night, is that all joy and wonderful, deep discussions? No way. (laughs) It's really hard to engage them at times. But is it worth it? On the soccer sidelines, is it easy to get people talking about the hope of Jesus? No, it's hard to even get them talking about anything. I feel nervous asking the big question. I don't know about you, you know, but like Coop said last week, he figured the awkwardness was worth it if there was just a chance that they would one day be standing with us in heaven. When I'm with non-Christian family, do they come with a list of questions for me? course not i imagine them they're like your family they come with strategies to avoid returning to those kind of conversations again but is it a waste is it a waste to gently point them to the hope of the resurrection is it worth it when i'm with a christian brother or sister who's in danger of giving it all in in danger of living a life not standing firm for jesus is it easy to tell them they're risking eternity No, it's hard to know what to say. But is it worth it? Today, we send 70 of you to start a new church. And we know sending you out is not easy. There are lots of moments where I found myself thinking, is this really worth it? But when I think about walking up to one of the 70 who who was standing today in heaven, walking up to you and you introducing me to somebody who is there standing with you in heaven because of the work that you are going to do? Is it worth it? It's worth saying goodbye.
so that one day we can stand side by side forever with people who've come to know Jesus in this world transformed. This might be hard work. It is hard work. But it's not in vain. And so today, whether you're staying or whether you're going, I want to ask you this question. How are you going to always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? How are you going to always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? Let me pray. Father, you know our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our frailties. We struggle so much to do this work, even though we know the joy that is coming, the hope that is coming is worth it. Father, strengthen us by your spirit to always give ourselves fully to this work. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.